So Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. It means it's going to be hard. That means following Jesus is going to be difficult. He is headed to the cross. He is on his way to, uh, he is going to be rejected. He is going to be uh, mocked. He is going to be falsely accused. He is going to be crucified. That means that following Jesus is not going to be easy. But many of us have decided he's the Messiah. He's the Christ. We're going to follow him. We're going to follow him no matter how hard it is, how much we might be persecuted, how much we might be mocked, how much we might be rejected, how how many tribulations we might go through, how many trials we might face. We're going to follow Jesus. And now what we really want to know is, what do I do now? I think when we come to the Bible, lots of times we want to know what to do. The Bible does not always tell us exactly what to do as often as we might like. But it does tell us what to do. And one of the gracious things that Jesus does for us is that Jesus teaches us what to do. What tomorrow and every day between now and the time that Jesus comes, what do we do? How How do we follow Jesus day by day? How do we follow Jesus week after week? What do we do? What I hope that you'll see by the time we're done today is what Jesus wants you to do as his disciple. In three simple episodes of him teaching his disciples what they are to do. What does he teach us to do? What does he show us to do? We're going to be in Luke 10 11 today. And what I want you to see first is that we should love our neighbor. We should love our neighbor. Luke 10, we'll start in verse 25. Luke 10, starting in verse 25. <clears throat> And let me just read verses uh, 25 through 28 to start. Verse 25 through 28, this is what it says. We should love our neighbor. Jesus says, uh, says, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind. And your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Uh, Jesus being challenged there by a lawyer. That doesn't mean like an attorney. It means a person who is an expert in Old Testament law. All those laws that are there in the, in the Pentateuch, in the first five books of the Bible. All those laws that are found there, this is a person who is an expert in those laws. This is a person who has given their lives to to getting the Jewish equivalent of a Ph.D. and then some to the law. He knows the law. And so, coming from his area of expertise, he goes at Jesus and he says, Jesus, tell us, which one is the most important one? What is the most important commandment, as Jesus often does? He responds to a question with a question. He says, how do you read it? That is, how do, when you look at the law, how do you interpret it? What do you interpret as the most important commandment? And the lawyer gives two commands, two commands. First from Deuteronomy 6, 5 says, love the Lord your God. He's paraphrasing uh, to, to p- pick up the, the entirety of our being with our heart and soul and mind and strength. Love God. With everything that you have, every part of you, your mind, your affections, your body, everything that everything that is you, give everything to God. 
And he says, quoting Leviticus 19.8, he's an expert in the law, he says, love your neighbor as yourself. And you know what? Jesus says, do this and you will live. This is exactly what Jesus teaches as the greatest commandment himself. Other places, when he has questioned, ask him, what's the great commandment? Jesus gives this answer. Probably one of the things we should realize about Jesus is that Jesus is an itinerant preacher. He is a traveling preacher. He travels around and he preaches. And oftentimes he's probably preaching the same messages in different places. And, and this is what he says. Everybody, well, this, is what the, this is the summation of the law and the prophets. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. This sums it all up. This is, the, this is the New Testament ethic. This is what it means to love God. This is what it requires to please God. And then Jesus says something there. He says, do this and live. This is the, this is the promise of the covenant. Of the old covenant. Of the Mosaic covenant. The covenant that God gave to the people of Israel at Mount Sinai, the, the implication is you will live if you do this. And that's true. That is, that is a condition. If we fulfill that, if any person were able to fulfill that, we would have life. You would live if you obeyed all of God's commands the way that Jesus says here. This is the requirement. And there is no problem with that requirement. That requirement is, is God's character put into commands. That is what we ought to do. The problem is not with the commands themselves. The problem is with us. The problem is, is that, the, and this is the, the universal teaching of the, the scriptures, is that over and over again, whether it is, if you follow the history of Israel, they actually obey these commands? No, over and over again they fail. We look at what, uh, what, who Jesus speaks to when he speaks to the Pharisees, who are those who uh, attempt to achieve life through obedience to God's laws. Jesus over and over again says that that cannot be done. In fact, he tells a parable in which a man, uh, a man who is proclaiming and praying that he has done all of these things and, and presenting himself to God, he says that man, that man is not justified before God. That man is not right before God. Is the one who humbles himself and trusts in God. He had to become like a little child to enter the kingdom of heaven. But the promise is there. Do this and live. And what Jesus Christ himself did was he did this. What we could not do in our sin, Jesus Christ did. Every day of Jesus' life, Jesus loved God with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength. And he loved his neighbor as himself. In fact, he loved us. He loved his sinful neighbors like us. He loved us and he gave himself for our sins. He gave himself and he died on the cross. Every day, he lived a perfect life of obedience to God the Father. And he had compassion on us and he became a human being and he died on the cross for our sins. So that what the relationship that we have to him is that we have a relationship with the relationship with him where he did this and now we live. He is the one who fulfills all of God's commands. He is the one who fulfills God's uh, God's demands so that we might have life. Those command, commands are good. 
And Jesus lived the good life that is required for us to have life. But then you see there in verse 29, and there's a way of understanding that. That doesn't mean that Jesus does not have things for us to do. It only means to say it in the backdrop of Jesus already accomplished everything that we need to have life. But then what do we do? What do we do now that we're following him? Well, look at verse 29, and this is, what the, this is what the expert in the law says. He says, but he, that is the teacher of the law, but he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? You know, you know what people who are attempting to achieve life by obedience, you know what they always try and do? They try and bring the demands for, of obedience down. They try and bring it down to a level that they can keep. So, who is my neighbor? Don't make my neighbor something that I can't do. Make my neighbor somebody who is, is somebody that I want to love, somebody who's easy to love. Make my neighbor somebody that I can love. You know, various different sects in the time of Jesus had, had restricted whom they loved. They only loved other Jews, or in some cases, they only loved those who were of the same sect as them. They only loved, Pharisees only loved other Pharisees, or Essenes only loved other Essenes. And that's what this man is doing. He wants to bring the demands down to where he can keep them. And that's what everybody does. Everybody has this built-in, built-in pattern of, I want to be, to live by achieving my own, my own life by obedience. I will obey God and I will then live. That's what I'll do. I'll obey God's commands. And so what we do is we set up our own standards. For some people, and, and standards vary, for some people it's just, I have not murdered anyone. I have not, I have not committed a crime. No one, I am not in jail. I, I, am, I am a good person. Or I, I don't lie about really big stuff. Okay? That's their standard. I, I don't lie about really big stuff. I lie about small insignificant things, but not big stuff. And you know, here's one thing to recognize is that for some people, the standard is quite high, even for unbelievers. Even for people who aren't following Jesus, even for those who, who are not, uh, not attempting to obey God, they have high standards. They operate... They operate their businesses in honest, upstanding ways. They are honest. They are faithful to their spouses and to their children. They have a strong family life. Here's the problem. Every human standard of righteousness is short of God's righteousness. God's righteousness is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now we like to think that in some way, you know, Jesus took these 613 commandments in the Old Testament and he simplified them down to these two and all of a sudden that makes it easier. But which one of us has loved the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength and loved our neighbor as ourself? Perfectly. Day in, day out. This man wants to bring it down so that he can justify himself before God. We're not allowed to do that. We trust in Jesus Christ to justify us before God. We trust in him as the one who loved us, who gave himself for us. 
And to make that clear to this expert in the law, Jesus tells a little story. Starting in verse 30, he says, Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. What Jesus does is tells a simple little story. A man's making a trip from Jerusalem down through the hills, uh, down Jerusalem's up on a mountain, down through the hills to Jericho. It's about 17 miles. It's through hilly country. There are all kinds of caves, robbers to hide in. And so there are some. There are some hiding. And they, they catch a man without, without any defenses, without being able to defend himself, and they beat him and they rob him and they leave him half dead. But, and you can see there in Jesus, when Jesus is telling the story, by chance, there happens to be a priest. That's good news, right? It's a priest coming by, a man half dead, but, but if anybody, this is a, a priest is responsible for teaching the law. He's supposed to teach the law to the people of God. If anybody knows the law, it's him, right? He's coming by. It's good news. He's going to help this man. He's going to take care of him. But right when he gets to him, he passes by on the other side. Passes by on the other side of the road. And then a Levite, a Levite, works in the temple. He assists the priest and everything, takes care of the temple. If anybody should know Leviticus 19.8, which says to love your neighbor as yourself, it would be a Levite, right? And yet when he goes by, he sees his neighbor over half dead. He passes by on the other side of the road. Real quick, you know, we don't know what they're thinking. Just not trying to develop their, their psychological processes. They just, they didn't help. They didn't help. Then a Samaritan. You have to understand what a Samaritan is to a Jew. Samaritan is, is someone who is a half-hearted, half-pagan traitor to the Jewish people. He's somebody who, when, when all of the Israelites were, were taken out of the land, there are some people who were left behind, and they intermarried with the pagan nations, and they began to uh, bow down to false idols. When they came, uh, after the Jews returned to the promised land, and they, the Jews built up a, built a new temple, a second temple, uh, the Samaritans came and asked if they could help, and the Jews said, no, thank you. You're, 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 too, you're impure. You can't come here. You can't, you can't help out with that. Uh, later on, the, uh, the Samaritans built their, own, built their own temple up on top of Mount Gerizim. A little bit later than that, the, the Jews came and they, they tore down that temple. So Samaritans were half-breeds. Samaritans were pagan idolaters. They were those who, who, over and over again, they were impure. Here you have a Samaritan. He is coming down the road. He's, he's the, least, the person you would least expect to help anyone. He's the person who is least devoted to the law the way that it's supposed to be kept. 
And yet when he sees the man, he goes over to him and he puts medicine, he puts uh, oil and wine. It'll be a form of medicine. He binds up his wounds. He puts him on his own animal. He's going to walk while the man rides and he takes him to an inn. And he pays the innkeeper after he takes care of him for, for a night. He pays the innkeeper three weeks, uh, enough to take care of the man for three weeks. I mean, in most cases... Hard to get my health insurance to pay for 48 hours. I mean, he's, he paid for him to, for three weeks to take care of this man. And then Jesus says, listen to what Jesus says. Verse 36, this is, this is the, little, the little judo throw that Jesus gives the man. Which one of these men proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell? What was the man's question? Who is my neighbor? Jesus said, which one of these men proved to be a neighbor? And the man can't even bring himself to say the Samaritan. He says, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, go and do likewise. Here's the question for us. How do we prove to be a neighbor to someone else? You know, Jesus has set us the the example and the pattern of how to love your neighbor. Jesus Christ, he came and he loved sinful neighbors like us. He loved us. He came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And now our, our what we are supposed to do as, as his followers is to go and be like him, to follow his example and to obey his commands. We are to follow him. There, it's all summarized right here. All summarized right here. Love your neighbor as yourself. How do we prove to be a neighbor to someone else? And this is the teaching of the New Testament. This is, this is the summary of Jesus' ethic. This is the summary of New Testament ethics. So look over in Galatians 5, 13 and 14. Or you can listen carefully. Five, thirteen, and 14. Galatians 5, 13 and 14, it says, For you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Do not use your freedom. Jesus came and he served you as his neighbor. He came and he served you. He died for you to make you free. Do not use your freedom to serve the flesh. Do not use your freedom to do, to, to, to do sin. To live sinfully. Instead, use your freedom to serve one another in love. The whole law. All of the commands of God are fulfilled in this one word, love your neighbors yourself. What do, you, what do we think in every situation? What do we do tomorrow, day in, day out, in the multitude of situations that we're going to be faced with over and over again where we have relationships with other people? We, we're trying to figure out what is right and wrong. There's not a, a specific word. Love your neighbors yourself. doesn't mean that none of the, any of the other commandments are needless. Sometimes, sometimes we're giving out... Given some details, but this is the kind of big umbrella that all of them fall under. Love your neighbor as yourself. You think that's easy? You know, Jesus, I do not think that our primary focus in obedience is the old covenant law. Our primary focus in obedience is Jesus' example and his commands. I think that's our primary focus. 
But lots of people think that our focus on following Jesus, on his example and his commands, since it is, it's fewer rules, maybe Jesus is bringing the rules down a little bit. He's putting them on the low shelf where we can get to them. If anything, Jesus clarified and intensified God's commands. He is not asking less of us. He is calling us to do more. He is calling us to go above and beyond the Pharisees who only live by an external standard. He is calling us in every situation for every person that we come in contact with, love your neighbor as yourself. And asking ourselves, how do I prove to be a neighbor to this person? How do I love this person in every situation? Jesus is not lessening the demands. He is calling us to a higher standard. He is intensifying. He is clarifying. He is giving us a laser sharp point to this is how to live. This is what I'm telling you to do. Listen to one more passage to James 2.8. James 2.8. Same command. Same command, not hard to remember. Not hard to remember. Just listen to this one little point, this one little word. One little word in James 2.8 I think is so significant. He says, If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. Pick up one, one word there. Royal. Royal. This is the command of our king. This is the command of the Christ. This is the command of Jesus Christ. He is the focus of our obedience. He teaches us what we should do. And he tells us we should love our neighbor as ourselves. That's what we should be doing. That's what we should be asking ourselves every day. How can I prove to be a neighbor to this person. So there you go. There's discipleship. There's discipleship. There's the start. We've seen that we should love our neighbors ourselves. I also want us to see that we should we should listen to Jesus. Look at verses 38 through 42. Luke 10, 38 through 42. We should listen to Jesus. It says, Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, You are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Got this little picture of of two sisters living in a house together. And, And Martha is one of those who welcomes Jesus into her house. She is taken care of. She is one of those persons of peace that we read about in earlier in this chapter where you know, the disciples are going out. There, there's going to be people, persons of people, people who are ready to hear the message, who welcome, in, uh, welcome Jesus in. 
welcome his, his proclaimers of God's word in. Martha's one of those people. And Martha is taking care of them. Martha is, is, is taking care of Jesus and his disciples. But she's busy running around the house getting everything ready. And Mary is just sitting at Jesus' feet and listening. And, and Martha brings this to Jesus' attention. And Jesus almost never, that, that I can picture, he, he never that I can tell, that I can remember. And I, I tried to think of it. He never sells a dispute the way that people hope that he will. <laughs> he never says, he never says, you know, my brother, my brother, my, my father has died. Now tell my brother to split the inheritance with me. Jesus never says, oh yeah, just go ahead and split the inheritance. He's your brother. No, he says, forget about that stuff. You follow me. You know that? Jesus never, Jesus never sells a dispute. So he says to Martha, he says, Martha, Martha. Such a taunt. I mean, he's not, he's not. He's not being mean to Martha. He says, you see what, see what Mary's doing? She has chosen the good portion. Actually, they're, they're the, the way that it's phrased, she has chosen what is best. She has chosen what is best. And it's not going to be taken. You are anxious and troubled about many things. She is sitting at my feet and listening. When Mary is sitting there at Jesus' feet, she is sitting with the, with the that is the posture of a disciple before her teacher. And she is sitting there listening to Jesus. She is listening to what Jesus says. It's a real easy comparison. Martha is troubled and anxious. And Jesus has just told us, love your neighbors yourself. It's not as if Jesus is against serving. But Jesus says, Mary has chosen the best to sit at my feet and listen. You know, we, we are not good at listening. We are not good at being attentive to Jesus Christ. Jesus says that is best, to sit and to listen, to sit and learn. If Jesus is going to be our teacher, we're going to be his disciples, that means we are going to sit and we are going to learn from him. We are to be learners, to pay, to pay attention and one of the things I want you to recognize here is that the, the digital revolution and the pace of modern life is not what makes it hard for us to pay attention. It's not changing our attention spans. It's not because Google's done something to our brains. It is our sinful nature. It is our, it is our struggle against sin that makes it difficult for us to pay attention. To, to pay attention to teaching, you have to actually think that you don't know it already. Yeah, it has to be a sense of humility. Jesus, I will listen to you because I don't already know. That's one of the, that's one of the most difficult things about, about, uh, about getting people to think is that they already think they know. Already, already, already know that. Already know that. Now, now, now what? Already know that. I don't need to think about that anymore. I already, know, I already understand that. I already know how to get saved. I'm saved. I know that. Uh, I know, all right, love your neighbors yourself. Got it. Now, now, is there really anything else to know? Jesus says, what Mary is doing, listening to me. Paying attention also requires patience. You know, to, 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 to sit and listen to Jesus, to listen to Jesus' words, and these, these are Jesus' words. 
These are where Jesus' words are found. The Bible is Jesus teaching to us. To sit and to try and understand requires patience. It doesn't come like that lots of times. And even, even when we are not thinking about things that are complex, when we're thinking about things that are simple but glorious, we're still called to ponder and think about those things until they begin to have the impact on our hearts that they ought to have. In this way, listen, the, the world sees busyness as something that is, makes us seem important. If we are busy, then we are important. If we are busy, then our life is full. And to a very large degree, we as Christians, our churches today, are very, very worldly on this matter. Very worldly. In fact, what is so dangerous about this form of worldliness is that we don't even recognize it as worldliness. We don't, even see, we don't even see our inability to pay attention to Jesus' words as a problem. We want sound bites. We want it simple. We want it laid out so that we do not have to think about it. And I'm just afraid that that's not the way the Bible's put together. That's not the way Jesus teaches. He calls us to listen and to think. And it requires self-discipline. It requires Thought. It requires patience. It, 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 we have to set aside laziness. The idea that we, the idea that we would get up early and, and, and focus ourselves and think about God's word. When there are so many other things to do. So many good things to do. And listen, and this is another thing that I think causes us to do this. Is that, that people see us serving. When we serve, people see that. People don't see it when we are alone with God. People don't see us when we are alone. You don't, get, you don't get much credit for showing up and listening to God's word. But if you're busy doing a lot of stuff, man, the, the church recognizes that as righteousness. That's righteous living. When Jesus is telling us, it is so much better to listen to my words, to listen to my teaching. And so, it's a simple story with a real simple lesson that we, we, we desperately need to listen to and we so don't want to. We need to listen to Jesus' words. We need to listen to Jesus' teaching. That requires a focus. That requires a discipline. That requires patience. It requires day in and day out effort on your part to listen, to read, to think, to ponder, to meditate on, to consider what God says in his word. And I would say that right now, if there's one in a hundred or one in a thousand people who who claim the name of Jesus Christ, who does that. Man, that, I, I just don't think that's part of our culture. I don't think that's part of what the, church, what the church values, but it ought to value it. It ought to value it. And if we can cultivate that in one another, well, let's do that together. Amen. Let's, let's do that if we're going to follow Jesus together, and we're following Jesus together as a church. 
Let's cultivate that. Let's encourage that. Let's not encourage, let's not, let's not encourage service, but let's not encourage busyness for the sake of busyness. Let's encourage thinking and listening to God's word, listening to Jesus' teaching. Not being anxious and, and toilsome and, 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 and worried about everything else that we could be doing. All right, the last thing that I want you to see is that we should ask the Father. We should ask the Father. Look at verses 11, chapter 11, verses 1 through 5, or excuse me, 1 through 4. Read those first. It says, Now Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. So Jesus is going to teach us how to pray. As with all these things that Jesus, just he's teaching us what to do. He's going to teach us how to pray. His disciples want to know how to pray. This is a disciples prayer. And Jesus starts with, with an, a, a direct address. Father. Not everybody gets to call God Father. Only those who have trusted in Jesus Christ rightly call God Father. It is only in the name of Jesus Christ that we pray to God as Father. It says Father. And Father gives us the right understanding, the right balance in how to approach God. On the one hand, He is Father, and in the same way, in, a, in an analogous way that we honor and respect our earthly fathers, we are to go before God with, with awe and reverence. We're to have the fear of the Lord in our hearts, where we are, we, we, we respect Him. One of the things that, that we try and teach children is say thank you and please and, and don't demand things of your parents. You, you, you treat them with respect. In the same way, we're, we're going to God with that same kind of respect. But there is also that tenderness that's there. God is going to favor us because he's our father. He loves us. He cares for us. He's going to be generous with us. There's every reason for us to go to our father with respect, but expecting that he is going to hear us and that he is going to do something good for us. That he's going to care for us. And Jesus gives us a couple of things to pray for. In the world, he says, Father, hallowed, hallow your name. Let your name be seen as holy in all the earth. And he says, your kingdom come. And I think the best way to understand the, the way that the scriptures fit together is the idea of, of that God's kingdom has already come. And then there's a sense in which it has not yet come. There are parts of it where there are already people who are responding to God's name. There are people who are already calling God holy. There are people who are already worshipers of God. Every day, all the time where the gospel is being proclaimed, people are submitting themselves to God. They are worshiping God. They are submitting to God's King, Jesus Christ. They are already living under His rule. We are, we are already, even Jesus says, that already he rules over all things. Ephesians 2, already we are seated with him in the heavenly places. There's already a sense in which we are submitting to him. But, but there's a lot that has not been fully brought in yet. That's going to be brought in at the, at the return of Jesus Christ. 
And so what are, we, what are we praying for when we say, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come? I think we're praying with, with a, with a two-part understanding of God. We want, we want more people to know your name. We want more people to sanctify your name, to count you as holy, to glorify you, to worship you. We want more people to submit to Jesus Christ as king. We want more people to do that. We want to do that more. We want more of our lives to be submitted to your will. But more than anything, we want Jesus to come back. We want Jesus to return. We want you to bring in the fullness of the kingdom. We want you to bring in the time where the entire world is filled with the glory of God. That's what we want. And I think we're going to get to this in just a second. But you see there in verse 3, it says, Give us each day our daily bread. That would imply that this whole prayer is prayed daily. We're praying this all the time. Every day we are praying, God, hallow your name. Father, hallow your name. Make your name seen as holy. Bring your kingdom in. Your kingdom come. And then we, then we pray, give us each day our daily bread. God, give us, give us the necessities for today. Give us what we need today. Give us what we need. We are every moment entirely dependent upon God to provide for us. And he says, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. We have, a, we have a relationship with the Father. And most relationships require continual asking for and giving of forgiveness. In a good marriage, there is asking for forgiveness and granting forgiveness. Not because in a healthy marriage, because that marriage is all of a sudden going to end if I don't say I'm sorry before we go to bed tonight. But to maintain a healthy relationship, there is constant for asking for forgiveness and granting of forgiveness. And that's what we do with our Father. Our relationship with, with God is not going to be broken because Jesus Christ has already accomplished all that, all that is required for our salvation. But there is this continual going to God when we sin, when we've done things that we know displease Him. That there is, this, there is this reconciliation. There is having been reconciled with God, we're continually maintaining that, that relationship by asking for forgiveness when we sin. And notice there it says, as we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. We are, we are having these same kinds of relationship problems, aren't we? We're not just sinning against God, we're sinning against one another. And if we're the kind of people who have known God's grace, then we're going to extend that grace to other people. Especially within the church. Especially within our church body. We're, we're going to be together. We're going to be a family of faith. There's continually asking God for forgiveness and there's continually asking one another for forgiveness and granting forgiveness to one another. One of, Jesus, one of, one of the things that Paul uh, tells uh, two women in the, in the church in Philippi says... You know, you know, he's talking to his fellow worker there. He says, hey, help these two to agree. You know, sin against one another. We need to forgive one another. Then he says, lead us not into temptation. The idea there is, is God, when we are tempted, keep us from falling. Especially keep us from falling away entirely. You know, it's ultimately God who keeps us. Keeps us all the way to the end. And there's one other thing I want you to notice here. Look at, the, look at the little pronouns there. Who's, who's saying it? Who's, who's making the prayers? 
It's not just me. It's not just I. It's us. You don't know how to pray for other people? You ever struggle? Jesus is teaching us how to pray. How do I pray for somebody else? This is what you pray for somebody else. Not only praying for me, not praying for my daily bread. Give us our daily bread. This is the disciples' prayer, the disciples' together prayer. Give us our daily bread. Forgive us our sins. Lead us not into temptation. Hallow your name. Your kingdom come. This is how we pray together. This is how we pray for one another. And this is how we pray. And the rest of the passage, verses 5 through 13, this tells us what our expectations should be and should motivate us to pray. Look at verses 5 through 13. It says, And he said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for an, a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? This tells a, a little parable about, about a man, you got a friend who comes at night, hospitality is a real big deal, you got to give him a place to stay, uh, you're going to have to feed him three times the next day, you don't have anything, you can't go down to the corner store and buy something, uh, um, Walmart is not open 24 hours in the ancient Near East, and so, so you got to go to your friend's house, you're banging on the door, and he says, what you want? And, and, and you, you're like, you keep banging on the door. He says, go away. I already put my kids in bed. Everybody's asleep. You wake up, you wake up our kids and we're mad. And he's going to keep, keep banging on the door. And he says, even if he won't get up because he is his friend, because of his impudence, because he is, because he is so persistent, he is unwilling to give up, he'll come out and he'll give him what you ask. Now, is Jesus like the friend who's not, is God, our Father, like the friend who's not willing to get up to get us anything? See, he's the exact opposite. Our Father is generous. Our Father is willing to give to us. And if our friend, whom we have to bug at night to get up and give us something to eat, if he'll even give us something, how much more will our Heavenly Father give us what we ask for? And then Jesus just goes into it. He says, ask and you'll receive. Seek and you'll find. Knock and it'll be open to you. Because everyone who asks receives. Everyone who seeks finds. And everyone who knocks will have it open to them. If you ask the Father, he will give it. If you're a disciple of Jesus Christ and you ask the Father, he gives it. We don't want to be like, like false prosperity preachers, but these are not false prosperity preachers right here. These are disciples of Jesus Christ who are asking that God would hallow his name. They're asking that God would make his kingdom come. They're asking for their daily bread. They're asking for forgiveness. They're asking to be kept from temptation. And when you ask that, the Father gives it. We should expect nothing but generosity from God. 
And he says, if you who are even evil, you're evil. God, Jesus assumes that all human beings are born sinful. And he says, all of you fathers who are sinful, if, you're, if your son asks you, if your child asks you for a fish, you're going to give him a poisonous snake. If he asks you for an egg, you give him a poisonous spider, you give him a scorpion. No, you know how to give good gifts. You know how to give good gifts to your children. If you ask the Father, he'll give you good gifts. And you know what? We, we blaspheme God's name by not asking more from him. The smallness of our prayers blaspheme God. Because we pray to God as if he were penniless and stingy. When in fact, God is great He owns everything, and he is good and generous. He is willing to give to those who ask. We ought to go to God expecting that he would give us good gifts. Especially the best gift, which is the Holy Spirit. You know how we're able to do what Jesus calls us to do? You know what the the promise of the new covenant is? The new covenant is, on the one hand, it's, it's that Jesus Christ is going to bring in the forgiveness of our sins. All these commands, Jesus fulfilled them already. Jesus loved his neighbor. He loved us by giving his life for us. But the second part of the new covenant is that he would give us of his spirit. And how do you love your neighbors yourself? Does that feel too big? God gives the spirit. Does it feel difficult? Does it feel really difficult to pay attention to Jesus' teaching? To understand? To really have any light from the word? He gives the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. Does it feel difficult to to be holy? Does the call to holiness to be holy like God is holy? Does that seem too difficult? The Father gives the Spirit to those who ask. The fruit of the Spirit... Does it seem like that that is not what it ought to be in your life? Is there too little joy, too little faith, too little patience? Ask the Holy Spirit. Ask for the Holy Spirit. Ask the Father. He gives the Spirit to those who ask. You want to serve the church? Ask God to make you a gift to the church. A spiritual gift to the body of believers. To build them up. God gives the Spirit. Now, Jesus teaches us what to do. He teaches us what to do every day. He gives us the big picture. It's going to be hard. It's going to be costly. You're going to be rejected. Jesus Christ was crucified. Jesus Christ was mocked. He gives us the big picture of the difficulty that is that that we're the, the difficulties that we're going to face to enter the kingdom of God. But He tells us what to do. Every day, love your neighbor, listen to Jesus, ask the Father. Every day, week in, week out. That's how you live as a disciple 